Good morning. Glad that you're here to worship with us at Rivermont today and I invite you to turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 5. We're continuing our study in the book of Daniel and there's a proverb that leads us into our passage today and it's Proverbs 16, 18. And it says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Today we've left Nebuchadnezzar's reign behind and we hear the story of his grandson, Belshazzar, who's ascended to the throne. And we can say that Belshazzar was a chip off the old block. He was a chip off the old Nebuchadnezzar, the one before he was humbled by the Lord and repented. Belshazzar was a prideful man. The city of Babylon had come under siege in his reign, and the, and the armies of the Medes and the Persians, just as chapter 2 had said, the Medes and the Persians came to assault the kingdom of Babylon. But Belshazzar, the new king, wasn't worried at all. Remember last week the description of the walled city of Babylon, how it was a double-walled city, and and in places it was about 87 feet thick between the two walls and the, the piece in between, and the walls in certain places were 350 feet high. It was a place that was impregnable, it seemed, to Belshazzar. And while the armies of the Medes and the Persians attempted their siege, King Belshazzar decided to throw a party, verse 1 tells us. The food and the drink at this party were served for the thousands of his kingdom who came into this party. All of their food and drink were served in the vessels for worship that had been stolen out of the temple in Jerusalem that we read about in chapter 1. It was a prideful contempt for Israel, the conquered people, and Israel's God. But then as one pastor put it, God crashed the party. In verse 5, the fingers appeared writing on the wall and Belshazzar was terrified. He was so terrified, verse 6 tells us, that he went pale and the ESV translated and his limbs gave way. But that's not literally what it says. I think the translators were trying to keep a little bit of decorum in the Bible and say they lost a little bit of what it truly says. Chapters 2 through 7 in Daniel are written in Aramaic, the language of the Babylonian Empire. And the Aramaic of these verses, verse 6 says, literally, the knots in his loins were untied and loosened. You know what that means? It means he was so afraid he lost bladder and bowel function. Belshazzar was so scared, he soiled himself. Now, who says the Bible isn't fun, right? tells the truth. Belshazzar was terrified. And about that time, his mother, the queen mother, came in and said, why don't you call Daniel? He was able to help your grandfather. Maybe he can tell you what this means. So Belshazzar did. And Daniel came and said to this prideful king, your grandfather Nebuchadnezzar was humbled until he knew that God indeed rules. How about you, Belshazzar? Let's pick up the story in verse 22. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. 
Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, which is Aramaic for numbered. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, which is Aramaic for weighed. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, Aramaic for divided. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. But that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Let's pray. Father, we ask that by Your Spirit You would open our hearts and open our eyes to the truth. The truth that we see here of our own idolatry and our pride and of the call of repentance that comes to us. Help us to hear and help us to submit to You, we pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen. In 1969, in past Christianity, Mississippi, a group of people were preparing to have a hurricane party in the face of a storm named Camille. And they felt invincible and in control of their future. The police chief of Past Christiane came up to the apartments, the Richelieu apartments that day, seeking to enforce the evacuation order. And this apartment complex faced the beach. It was 250 feet from the surf. They were in direct line of danger. And as the police chief came to those apartments that day, a man with a drink in his hand came out to the second story balcony and waved. And the chief yelled up, you guys need to clear out of here as quick as you can. The storm's getting worse. But the others joined this man on the balcony and they just laughed. They stood firm in the arrogance and the invincibility of control. The chief was unable to persuade them to leave. And so he wrote down the names of the next of kin of the 20 or so people who had gathered at that party. And they laughed as he took down their names. They had been warned, but they had no intention of leaving. The storm that would make its way all the way up to Nelson County, Virginia, came ashore at 10 p.m. And scientists clocked the winds of Camille at about 205 miles per hour as they came ashore that night. And the waves coming on shore on the Gulf Coast and past Christiane were 28 feet high. The news reports of that day later show that the worst damage came to Past Christiane, where the news article I read suggested that there were 20 people killed at a hurricane party at the Richelieu Apartments. Feeling invincible and in control can be a very dangerous place to be, especially when in reality we are neither invincible nor in control. And yet the Lord uses these dangers in our lives, the the challenges that are in our way, when the writing is on the wall, so to speak. And He uses them to warn us. He uses them to grow us. And at times He uses them to judge those who refuse to repent. What uses might He make of your writing on the wall in your life today? What do we see here to guide us as we live through our own judgment and sin? 
The first principle we see here is that God may use our danger to expose our idols so that we're led to himself. He might use our danger in our lives to expose the idols of our hearts so that we have an opportunity to be led to himself. We see in verses 1 to 4, the arrogant Belshazzar looked over the walls of his city at the mounting Mede and Persian armies that encamped around them, and he scoffed. They can't reach me. I'm too powerful, he thought, just like those folks on the balcony at that hurricane party. And despite them, he too threw a party. And he decided to use the worship vessels from a conquered people, the people of Judah, to do it. Now, it would be something like if You came home from work one day and you found that your spouse had tossed all of your belongings onto the front lawn of your house. The message would be really clear, wouldn't it? Contempt for your stuff equals contempt for you. Belshazzar was sending the same message. Contempt for God's stuff equals contempt for Israel's God. Belshazzar had contempt and it was, it was incredible to me that verses 13 and 14 of our passages tell us he knew about this God. He knew this power. He knew that this God had powerfully worked in the life of his grandfather. But Belshazzar had no use for this God anymore. That is until the writing came on the wall in verse 5. And Belshazzar was terrified to see it as as God's fingers inscribed on the wall. And I'm sure we would all be terrified too. So he called his advisors together in verses 7 and 8, the enchanters and the astrologers and the, the wise men, and he asked them all, what does all this mean? What's going on? But the text tells us they couldn't tell him. All these advisors, all these Gods of these advisors that they asked and inquired of, and none of them could interpret the words. None of them knew what they meant, and Belshazzar quaked. And as Daniel exposed the idolatry of Belshazzar in verses 23, he rebukes him for worshiping and consulting all of these idols who have no possibility to give answers or aid. Those gods of silver and and bronze and gold and wood and stone. The gods who can't see or hear or know. They have no possibility of help whatsoever. And yet turn to them, Belshazzar did, for answers. And the truth be told, friends... You and I aren't all that different from Belshazzar in that sense. When we are afraid and when we are confronted with a problem that's too big for us to understand, a problem that's too big for us to handle, then you and I too turn to our own strategies. We turn to our own gods to try and deal with it. And like Belshazzar, God may frustrate our patterns. He may frustrate our strategies. He may frustrate our gods in order to lead us to himself. You've heard me before talk about my past divorce when my then wife of five years walked out on me and on the church and on God, didn't want to have anything to do with any of us anymore. And to that point, my life had been so carefully constructed and it all seemed to be come crumbling down with everything that I wanted out of life now out of reach. No wife. My job teaching at a seminary was in jeopardy. My reputation was in tatters. My joy was gone. I felt abandoned not only by my wife, but also by the Lord. What now? All those things that 
I had depended upon and relied upon were all being frustrated. The strategies were being ripped away from my fingers. I remember at about that time reading a commentary on the book of Galatians by Martin Luther one afternoon. And I came to the section on chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I remember when I got to Luther's comments on that section, I threw the book across the room and I screamed at God. I said, what do you want from me? You've taken everything that I love, everything that I've counted on. I've served you. I've lived for you. I've done all this stuff for you. And now you've taken everything away from me. What else are you going to squeeze out of my life? I was so angry. And I was undone and frustrated because all of my strategies, all of my attempts to find answers and build my life on something solid were frustrated. That solid thing I tried to build my life on was all the things I was doing for the Lord. All this reputation that I had acquired for being a good servant of God. That day as I was sitting on the floor in tears, having no idea what to do, the Holy Spirit showed up. And He didn't do so by writing on the wall, but He did so by writing in my heart. To hear again those verses. I have been crucified with Christ. Yes, it's painful. And yet it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And it came so clear to me that day. That my life isn't built on what I do for God, but rather the solid place in life is what Christ has done for me. The solid place to stand, the place to turn for answers is not me for Jesus, but instead Jesus for me. And all those idols that I constructed of reputation and duty and honor and service and a ministry done for God, God smashed them all. So that I could see that I really didn't love Jesus at all. I didn't love him at all because he seemed to me to be a demanding and critical father. Who just stood over me and demanded performance and demanded duty. And yet that day, the Lord began to rebuild my heart. By writing on the wall of my heart. And he had to do it by taking away all of my strategies and my answers and the things that I depended upon, my reputation and my service and all of my duty for God, all those things that made me feel better about myself, they all are worthless. The only solid and dependable thing to build our lives upon is Jesus' love for us. Jesus going to the cross for us. Not me for Him. Not me serving Him but Him for me. And in order to see it and truly experience it, the Lord had to frustrate all that I depended upon so that I might rest in what He's done for me. I wonder what idols, what gods, what strategies or answers in your life the Lord might be frustrating today. You know, most often those good things, those Idols start out as good things. They start out as, as things that, that are blessings in our lives and we turn them to be ultimate. We turn them to be something more. We turn them to be things that define us, things that make us feel acceptable. 
those things that we lean upon to make us feel good or make us feel strong or make us, make us feel untouchable, make us feel invincible. What idols might the Lord be frustrating or toppling or smashing in your life today so that you might be led to Him today? Might it be the God of your reputation The God of doing all of these wonderful things. And if I do enough, then surely God and everyone else will be happy with me. The Lord will shake that idol and tear it down. Might it be the God of comfort? I know that God loves me if I'm comfortable and happy. And if things begin to go wrong, then maybe He doesn't care so much about me anymore. He might tear that idol down in your life. Perhaps it's the God of... I'm better than. I'm better than the people around me. I'm morally better. I'm spiritually better. I'm aesthetically better. I know what's good in this life. I know what's praiseworthy in this life. I am so much better than all of them. Perhaps the Lord will show you and me the truth of our hearts that He might tear that idol down. Perhaps it's the God of needing always to be right. I must be right. And if I'm not right, then something is wrong in my soul. But the Lord will tear it down so that you and I come to not only believe in our heads, but believe in our hearts that He is the only one who is always right. And you and I are called to humility before Him. What idol might the Lord be frustrating that you've depended upon in your lives? He certainly will shake the idols and call us to repentance each and every day. It's not a once and done thing, but it's an everyday thing to repent of all of those strategies and idols. Ian Murray, the great minister and biographer, once wrote of a sentiment that he and a mentor shared in common. He wrote this, I would have been undone had I not been undone. I would have been ruined had I not been ruined. He said, God orders lesser afflictions that we might escape the greater afflictions. What might the Lord be tearing down in your life? It seems like God's pattern in our lives is so often to frustrate our go-tos, our go-to idols, our go-to answers, our go-to strategies that we might repent and run to Him. The second principle we see in this text is that God presses us with the truth so that we might repent. When no one could help Belshazzar with the message on the wall, he called to Daniel at the suggestion of the queen mother. And what a speech Daniel made in verses 17 to 24. He said, pride doesn't work, Belshazzar. It didn't work for your grandfather Nebuchadnezzar and it won't work for you. Judgment is coming to you, he said in verses 22 and 23. And the you is emphatic in those verses. You knew all of this in your heart, but you did not humble yourself. See, the problem with Belshazzar wasn't ignorance. The problem was a hard heart. And as the party was going on, the finger of God wrote in the plaster on the wall as thousands of His attendants were looking on and the God, the God's finger wrote judgment against Belshazzar. Verse 25, He wrote, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson, numbered, numbered, weighed and divided. 
put in our colloquial language, we might understand it this way. He's saying, God has your number. God has examined you, and you, Belshazzar, are a lightweight. God's going to divide you from your kingdom and your supposed glory. You see, Belshazzar's life had been examined, and God says that it was lacking. And the verdict was engraved before everyone, all the people he was trying to impress. And God engraved the judgment, the the failures, the, 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 the weakness of Belshazzar. He engraved it on the plaster of the wall of the palace. Can you see why Belshazzar was afraid? He was undressed before all of his kingdom and before God Almighty. It was written there for everybody to see and everybody to know. And even more tragic in verses 22 and 23, he says, you knew all of this, Belshazzar. You knew this to be true and you still turned to idols. He was such a fool. He was such a fool who knew better, but he still turned away from the grace that was extended to him. The problem wasn't a lack of information. The problem was a hard heart. And friends, that's our problem too. It's a tragic mistake that you and I make when we believe that the lack of change in our lives is because of a deficit of information. It's a tragic mistake. We know we consume reams of information. We consume tomes of theological information and yet we still demonstrate a hardness of heart. And education can't solve the problem of the hardness of heart, of pride of heart. Only the Spirit of God pressing His grace down deep into our souls can make hard hearts soft. Like Belshazzar, we've been told the truth. And maybe we're indifferent toward it. We've been told that our gossip is sin. Our lust is sin. Our chronic faithless complaint is sin. Our pride is sin. Our wandering lustful eye is sin. But we're indifferent. We just shrug it off. No change of life. No change of heart. Instead, friends, rather than indifference, our prayer must be that the Holy Spirit would rouse us from our educational and informational feasts and drive us to our knees in repentance and to truly believe in all that we know. To truly have that information go from our head to our heart so that we are disciples that walk in the way of gracious truth. After all, who's reading this testimony? It wasn't Belshazzar. He was long dead. It wasn't even written down for the Babylonians. But instead, it was written for the exiles. It was written for the people of God. It was written for us. For you and for me to know that we as God's people have been weighed and we've been found lacking. We know the truth and we can't ignore it. And the only answer is to repent. The Lord looks at us and says, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. We have been examined and counted guilty too. So what do we do? How might we change and respond differently than the proud Belshazzar, whose life was demanded from him that very night. Well, I think that we have to remember that the writing on the wall of our judgment has been traced out by the finger of God dipped in the blood of Jesus. That's how we change. When we remember that all of our judgment, 
All of the places we've been weighed and we've been found wanting. All those places that we are so deeply ashamed that if anybody knew the truth about us, surely they would turn away from us. And yet the judgment on all of that has been poured out on Jesus the one who is promised, the one who takes upon Himself our guilt and our shame on the cross that you and I might live. Do you know yourself well enough to be driven to your knees in repentance over your sin and in belief in the blood of Jesus who can wipe you clean? We don't look to making ourselves feel better by being better than them but we only rest in what Jesus has done for us. That's how we'll change. We have set before us in this passage two invitations. We have the invitation of Belshazzar to the banquets of this world that celebrate our pride and our accomplishment, our acceptability, our invincibility, our sense of control. And yet there's no life in that feast. All of those things are only monuments to death. But as Belshazzar feasted, verse 30, that very night, his presence was demanded by another invitation. It was a summons before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the great seat of judgment. Belshazzar in his kingdom has passed away, just like Daniel said it would in chapter 2. The gold kingdom become the silver of the Medes and the Persians and will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, the kingdom of the rock who was to come and who now has come. It all played out exactly like God said it would. And you and I too received that same invitation. We also received that summons to the throne. And what is your plea when we face judgment? Our only plea is in the kingdom of the rock. The rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. You see, in Jesus our sin is judged and it is taken away that we might, in the Lord Jesus, feast eternally at His life-giving table. Will you bow the knee? Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have weighed us and called us up short. Lord, I thank You that You love us enough to show us the frustrating ends of all of our strategies and answers and idols and gods that fail to save, that fail to make us even feel better. And yet all they do is make us keep the pile of shame higher and higher because we know the truth of who we are on the inside. And so we ask, Lord, that as we come before you and your great mighty throne of judgment, that our plea would be in the kingdom of the rock, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus, the one who has come for us on the cross and and shall return again in power and in glory to right every wrong, to fix every problem, and to undo every effect of sin in this world. That is our hope. Our hope is in you. And we bow our knees before you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.